When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grielso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast, episode number 175, Charles and the Ideal Revolution. This episode, I will be leaning heavily, amongst others, on the work of Dr. Lloyd Bowen, a professor at Cardiff University who has done a lot of research on this period of early modern Wales and has published many articles and books on it and about the Civil War which, of course, we are starting to get into from the Welsh perspective. So I would certainly recommend him as a writer who has a lot of knowledge and capability when it comes to this era and would advise you to check out some of his stuff for sure. So to get to the story, the arrival of King Charles I to the throne created a number of issues. First was the negotiations for a wife. First in Spain, which ended in a disastrous situation, including controversy on any sort of marriage to a Spanish princess of any type on the mindset of many English people, followed by a marriage between himself and a French Bourbon noble. The fact that he was being matched up with Catholic women irritated the Protestants and their increasingly religious extremes in Britain. The Protestant element, as we had mentioned previously, had become particularly politically influential during the Stuart years. Rather than simply accepting differing viewpoints, each side hardened over the years as Protestants who had increasingly saw the Catholic Church as satanic or evil, filled with conspiracies that pushed an anti-Catholic agenda through the Parliament, which created a great deal of animosity, of course, towards anything even remotely seeming to be similar to Catholic rulers or faith. After his succession in 1625, Charles believed strongly in the idea of the divine right of kings. Divine right, something which became popular during this period, refers to the idea that because they were born to inherit the throne, it meant that God had chosen them to that position. Therefore, they were specifically to be given latitude to rule as they should be, as they are seen as God's stand-in on earth. Uh, something we've seen in the past with some of the perspectives that had happened during the Roman era as Christianity began to take over, the concept that the king or the emperor or whoever, because they receive their right to rule by birth, it obviously means that they must have been divinely put in that position, something which is a little sketchy in the medieval period when kings are being knocked off rather quickly and passing on to an heir becomes much more difficult to do. Some of this comes from the humanist movement, of course, which we mentioned in past episodes. With the arrival of the Protestants, thought came the idea 
that changes the emphasis away from the concept of the Pope as head of the kingdom of God and a philosophy being replaced with the temporal monarch being the true representatives of the kingdom of God and the natural placeholder chosen by God. And of course, as this continues to run on, it becomes much more popular and it runs into a growing concept of the Protestant understanding, which was popular in England, about the central role of the individual and their relationship with God. There was to be no intermediary between the God and man, or between God and the state and man. This idea was seen as totally unacceptable to a lot of Protestant religions. And because of that, the king as a temporary placeholder for God was not seen as accurate because kings were fallible and flawed and thus realistically not to be considered on the same value or measurement. The idea in Protestant thought about the hierarchy of worship and the concept built on a common struggle meant that no one was above anyone else. That in quotes, we are all beggars before God, which means that kings were no different from anyone else, and their royal birth did not mean that they were somehow better than or more acceptable or higher positioned than any other normal man. Charles' growing separation with his people meant that many in Parliament were determined to reign in his government. Many of his subjects opposed his policies, and in particular the levying of taxes without parliamentary consent something that was a bit of an aggravation for Charles, and perceived his actions as those of a tyrant, an absolute monarch, in a country that had been run with checks and balances since the Magna Carta, and there was no way that the lords and MPs were going to suddenly hand over power to Charles, which he desired so much that they had fought for and gained almost 500 years ago now. His religious policies, coupled with his marriage to a Roman Catholic, generated animosity and mistrust in increasingly powerful Reformed religious groups, such as the English Puritans and the Scottish Covenanters, who thought he was becoming far too influenced by Catholicism, and were suspicious of him anyway. His supported Anglican officials, such as the controversial Richard Montague and William Laud, also failed to aid this impression. And, of course, one of the reasons was is they had dismissed the idea of aiding continental Protestant forces during the Thirty Years' War, something which annoyed a lot of Protestant believers. This belief that he was far too influenced by these Catholic people continued to create division, and his own stubbornness and arrogance likely did not help. The breakdown in relations between King Charles I and his Parliament was a pressing issue, in Wales as it was in England. Despite the language barrier between the two countries, political gossip and debate about key points at issue circulated freely in Wales. Yet, at the same time, commenters noted that Wales, far from being against this English monarch, instead often supported Charles's positions over the Parliament. For example, in May of 1642, the Venetian ambassador reported that the people 
in quotes, that the people of the province of Wales had offered their king their service, beseeching him to go and live in that corner of the kingdom. In other words, come live in Wales, because you'll be safer here and you'll be treated better. This same diplomat would say, in quotes, In the province of Wales, the devotion of the people to the king is constantly receiving fresh confirmation, end quote. So how do we explain this loyalty that the Welsh had showed towards Charles and his heirs? I mean, we've talked about this in the past, and to go into it further, partly it seems to have arisen from a Welsh culture that venerated Charles I as being descended from a line of ancient British kings. As we've discussed at length throughout this podcast, Welsh people, especially those who were culturally enmeshed in the language and life of Wales, saw themselves as true Britons, heirs of the ancient inhabitants of the island and their language carrying forward from that, which meant that the arrival of the Tudors to the throne was seen as a victory for Wales, and all those who were descended from that line generally were respected for being Welsh, even if none of them knew the language, culture, or sympathized with their Welsh subjects largely. Let's not be foolish here. Even though the monarchs talked about Wales and how it was important to them, the reality of it was is that largely it was more like they were the good people that were doing what they were told, unlike the Irish. So it was more of a comparison issue than an actual reasonable sense of loyalty to or understanding of the Welsh culture. Illustrating this kind of Welsh monarchism, it presents itself when the Prince of Wales, the future Charles II, toured Anglo-Welsh borders in 1642 at a feast at Raglan Castle, home of the enormously wealthy Earl of Wooster. Charles was treated to a series of entertainment, which was passed through the lens of Welsh pride in their British heritage. The prince was assured that, in quotes, it is the glory of the Britons who were always true, remaining the one and only people of this land, and we have always been true in our affections to our king and country. We know no son that can, with the influence of royal beams, cherish and warm our true British hearts, but the son of our gracious sovereign. In what true and ancient Britons may serve you, you may command us to our uttermost strength, and our lives and fortunes be ready to assist you. End quote. The Welsh Reformed Church was much more loyal to the monarchy than its English counterparts, and often were discomforted by the extremes of Puritanism. The Puritan emphasis on religious reform, which drove a good deal of the opposition to Charles I in England and Scotland, had little resonance in Wales. In Wales, the Reformation had been focused on the Welsh language and cultural preservation. The translations of the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer had been seen as massive Protestant achievements. Protestantism had been interpreted by Welsh scholars and the church people as a return to the so-called original faith of the Britons forefathers of the Welsh, something that made no sense practically but or historically, but was an argument highly favored that the Reformation was a return to the simple rites of the church rather than an innovation. Because of this and the natural rural conservatism of the Welsh in general, the support for the monarch was built on the pillar of British rule 
with a culture and faith which supported them through that and through its survival had actually grown in popularity. The idea and concept that is established today is one of the reasons why the Welsh language survived was the development of the printing press and the publishing of Welsh language documents such as the Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, and many other religious tracts which continued to need to use Welsh to reach the people and thus the language remained strong because of that, something that wasn't happening in official circles as decisions were being made at various levels to focus on English language rules, laws, and commands, thus the fact that the monarch actually gets credited for the survival of the Welsh language at this point is somewhat laughable, I would argue, but nonetheless, there we are. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. 
The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. At the same time, information was becoming more and more important in early modern Britain. The spread and understanding of news and politics and religious debate was spreading farther and faster than ever before. One of the reasons that the Parliament and the Crown were able to influence so many to support them came out of this revolution. During all of this change in the politics of Britain, one changing aspect was the arrival of more and more ways to publish news. Most news in the past arrived by word of mouth, traveling merchants, commentaries of local dignitaries, and the like spread news from locations far and wide, likely as on social media today, with a mix of truth and lies, fantastic tales of fictionalized reality, mythological concepts about what another place or another location would be like, descriptions of even two towns over might be wildly different than the reality of them, because there was no way to confirm them. No, no one went there. No one, you know, went from... Cardiff to Oxford to see what Oxford was like. So there wasn't necessarily a concept of that. Was there people who traveled? Yes, but they were usually higher educated and much more uh, economically mobile. And this was changing during early modern Europe. More and more people were spreading out. Because of the colonization of the New World, there was also even more people spreading even farther distances and bringing back all sorts of tales and stories. So all of these would have fed into this desire to know more, particularly about locations that weren't just your local town or village or hamlet. In early modern Europe, this had changed to such a degree, not necessarily in the quality of news, but rather in the quantity and the way it was spread. The growth of the printing press over the last 100 years had enabled a cottage industry of presses, unburdened by the limitations of copyright and the need for massive houses of monks to try and corral and copy information, meant that it was a lot easier to reach a wider audience. This created a revolution and for those that lived through the arrival of the information age, this would feel solidly very similar. The way information was digested changed so dramatically, one might wonder just how people felt in those circumstances. Just imagine that 25 years ago, most people digested their information from print media and from television. Within a very relatively short amount of time, most people now digest their, their news and information from computers and very few from print and while there are more there are still less that are perceiving it from television youtube now is more popular than most tv channels all of these things are having massive influence on how we digest and understand our world and just like that the printing press changed that we went from basically your aunt and your uncle sending you a letter from London telling you about the local gossip to printed documents that were done in your own vernacular with your own language and your own ideas and concepts influencing things. In the early part of the 1600s, news was spread by single individuals or small groups and was now going from word of mouth to printed page. What we consider to be newspapers, as we would consider them now, were not yet in publication, or at least not in full publication. 
Instead, news and information was passed along via pamphlets, news sheets, which are basically one-pagers that were printed and then published and advertised, as well as posters. It was pamphlets and these news sheets that were being used by various members of various uh, religious movements that were spreading this information via these pamphlets, basically advocating for their ideas or their concepts. And in order to have that, they would have to print hundreds, maybe even thousands of them to get them out to the general public. The first newspapers would arrive in England from Amsterdam, published on specifically December 2nd, 1620. Containing the latest foreign news, this publication immediately sparked a huge demand for up-to-the-minute reports on domestic and world events. From stories of war to lurid accounts of celebrity scandals among the various royal families of Europe, journalism exploded into a world of Renaissance England, effectively combining the gossip of the taverns and conversations in various gentry circles to allow all of this information to be coalesced into these documents. This gave way to a phenomenon of a wide cross-section of the population reading the events or having them read to them on daily or weekly cheaply printed and published serial publications. The earliest newsprint reached Britain from Amsterdam, the center of financial wealth in Europe at the time. And even in its early manifestations, news had a very familiar presentation with dramatic headlines, an editorial, and even advertising. It would not be long after the arrival of them that attempts were made to, for the state to control, through censorship, what was being said in these papers, because they were perceived as not towing the public line or, or what the king or parliament wanted and control over the press became more than just over the thoughts of the press, but also the physical presses themselves. In Wales, gentlemen accessed, consumed, and interpreted political news much as we do now, as would their English counterparts through obtaining reports that they would get by various religious figures and publications that were being written down. And of course, they were now slowly coming into these news books, as they were called, or subscribing to scribal news services. Again, these are written documents, but slowly over time, starting to be replaced through print. And through this action, they participated in the way news information was passed. And as these printed documents started to become more in vogue, it would continue to influence all of Europe, but specifically in Wales, it would also change the perception of how you consume and understand media. Simply knowing what was happening in a few local areas previously, maybe London in some cases, was now replaced by a desire to know more about far distant locales. Much as the Romans began to publish travel logs of places and natural wonders that were found in their world, early modern Britons delighted to hear about the strange travels and going-ons in foreign courts and places far and wide. 
for many, what drove the interest was built on personal connection, culture, and regional interests, all of which are would be no surprise as they would have a distinctively Welsh dimension. News was frequently obtained by countrymen and relatives in London who then forwarded the material to gentlemen's at their home, often through carriers and middlemen, considered reliable enough because they were known to both parties. Trusted news sources were as important as then as they are now. You know, these networks that provided news, in these cases, a social network filled with members who could present a reliable story or at least perceived as a reliable witness. And so thus, these members of these networks were key to interpreting and authenticating these news reports. Your uncle or lord in London presenting you with a news pamphlet on the reasons why it rained so much last year from some guy in Paris would likely be seen as more reliable than the random printed page given to that same gentleman from a local shop in London. The other larger aspects of this was that fellow countrymen interpreted the news and would give their own spin on what the whole dimension of the news meant, and it would fashion and color their local understandings. This would have been popular in the past and familiar to people in this period, as most of their understanding was news, was built on this framework of a presenter who then gives you a local dynamic to go with it all. It would take time and experience for this to be replaced by what would be a more modern version of the news. And we will go in more depth about this growing influence of media on perceptions amongst locals, as well as further information as we go into this century. However, as further focus was made on education at various levels, it became much more important to become informed at greater and greater levels. The idea of literacy for everyone was still hundreds of years or more away, but the beginning of the printed press had democratized what had been information in the past and what was reaching people and was allowed to reach people to spread at levels that had never been seen before. All of this meant that our entire concept of what was news, what was information that we would need or want, what people thought was important became colored by very modern ideas such as you know, selling advertisements. You can't put it on a page that nobody cares about. Pushing agendas and ideas and editorializing the news in ways that would be different from what we did in the past. Also, the influence of the monarchy and the parliament on these publications that would flash back and forward and push their own agendas and lobby the people to get to them on side would become more and more important. And as elections started to change and the way that people participated in the creation of government, all of these things would work in tandem with these newspapers. The popularity and of these papers is actually so much that they were the most popular thing that was printed on printing presses. The reason why we have so few of them actually in, in current times is not because they weren't popular or read. They were massively popular and massively read, but they were printed on cheap paper back then. 
and thus they decomposed a lot faster, unlike documents from church leadership or or books that were written that were bound and, and kept in a collection. All of those things would be kept a lot easier than a one-pager that was handed out into the public that was read very quickly and gotten rid of or used to cover a hole in your roof or you know all the various things they would do with these things. So thus, even though there was thousands upon thousands of these things printed by comparison to, say, the Welsh Bible, they weren't necessarily durable enough or stable enough to survive beyond that. And so while we know they existed and were talked about constantly, and as I said, we'll go further and further into detail as we get more and more of this, um, we have to keep in mind that one of the reasons why we don't have so many of them is because they were being printed on a daily, weekly basis. The construction of them was poor. The way they functioned was less useful past that date. And of course, the evidence we do have shows that quite often they were wrong in the stuff that they were saying. But nonetheless, it was an important development in modernizing the way information in it was passed and the way people talked to each other. The American Revolution, a hundred years later, will almost exclusively be projected upon us through the writings uh, in papers and in various books that would be pamphleted out, leaning back on these things. So all of this continues well into our current era. Social media is just almost an outgrowth of these concepts and ideas. So this is something we have to keep in mind when we're looking at this. So with that, we'll end this conversation for now. We're coming into the Civil War period and kind of what's leaning into that, and we'll get in more detail about that next time. Thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh at twitter.com forward slash Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Or if you would like to contribute to the running of this particular podcast in the publishing and the studying and the research, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. I really appreciate all of you who do donate and uh, thank you so much continually. I really respect your willingness to do so. And Again, I'd just like to remind you all that we are now a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. We'll be going into further details about that in the coming days, but uh, I'm hoping that this will continue to create new opportunities for us to get our podcast out and for people to find us and participate in the fun. Until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.